0: This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Well, hello there, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your teacher for this podcast, Jeremy Myers. We're in this ongoing study about spiritual warfare, and whether or not you realize it, as we talked about in the previous study, you are in spiritual warfare. Today we're going to discuss how you can stand up against the wiles of the devil. We're going to be talking about the battle plan in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. We'll be skipping verse 12 for today to look at that next time. Now, I do want you to know that these lessons will find their way into an online course, which people in my discipleship group can take for free, absolutely no charge. There is a fee to join the discipleship group, but when you do that, uh, you get access to all of my online courses, along with free ebooks and email discipleship uh, emails. Uh, a private Facebook group, access to me emailing me and a private form, a whole bunch of other benefits to you as well as you seek to follow Jesus and find questions to your deepest or find answers to your deepest questions about Scripture, about God and about theology. So this uh, this class on spiritual armor, this, the armor of God in Ephesians 6:11 through13 excuse me, I just about sneezed there, uh, will be part of that discipleship group as well. And you can already sign up and take the course. The first two lessons are already there. So if you're listening to this podcast and you want to join the discipleship group, or maybe you're already part of the discipleship group, just go over to redeeminggod.com slash courses, click on the Armor of God one, and you can sign up and start taking that course right away. I'll be adding lessons as we go along. At the end of the course, you will get the opportunity to download a free copy of my book on the Armor of God, and it contains a lot more information and detail and research than I'm able to share in the lessons themselves or even in these podcast studies. All right, so with all of that in mind, let's dive into our study of Ephesians chapter 6. All right, so in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 13, this is the second part of our study on the armor of God as we learn about it in Ephesians chapter 6. And the previous lesson, we looked at Ephesians six ten, which is just sort of the introduction to this section in Ephesians on the armor of God, which is uh, the battle cry. And in it, Paul pointed out that we are brothers; we we are standing next to one another on this field of battle, and we all need to unite together. And then the second part of verse ten was this battle cry, sort of to get our blood uh, pumping through our veins and, and and get excited, get get just all get together as we. Ch- charge onto the field of battle. Now I say charge, but actually, as we're going to see today, there is no charging at all. And so before we find our way onto the field of battle. Remember, we're sort of in this section of Ephesians, of the spiritual armor, where Paul has gathered us together and said, look, we all need to be on the same page here. So uh, Ephesians 6, verses 11, 12, and 13 really is the battle briefing. It's where we learn the situation, learn who our enemy is, learn what we're up against, and also get our orders, our marching orders, how we're supposed to conduct ourselves on the field of battle. And that's really what we find in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 13. This is what I'm calling the battle plan how we are to conduct ourselves, how we are to move forward and engage the enemy on the field of battle. All right. And this uh, battle plan has three parts. We are going to sort of discover what God has given to us for this battle. We are going to discover a little bit about how we are supposed to conduct what our exact commands are for the battle, and then finally, we're going to learn a little bit about how to avoid the traps that our enemy has laid out for us. All right, so let's just begin right here with the first part is what God has given to us for this battle, and it is obviously the armor of God. Uh, "Before we head out into battle against our enemy, God wants us to put on the armor which He has given to us. So the first part of this battle plan is to put on the full armor of God. That's what Paul says the first he says it twice in uh, the first part of verse 11 and also the first part of verse 13. He says, "Put on the whole armor of God and then and take up the whole armor of God. Now, when Paul wrote these words about 2,000 years ago, remember, he was in prison in Rome. And so he was likely chained to a Roman guard soldier about 24 hours a day. And being chained to an armed guard was one of the ways the Roman military put protection and extra security around important prisoners like Paul. He had a firsthand opportunity to study and understand the importance of the armor that the Roman soldiers were wearing. And it's possible he even talked to them about their armor. Why do you wear that? Why is it effective? Why not something else? Okay, And and, and this will be important to, to recognize when we look at verses 14 through 17, where Paul takes the various pieces of armor, talks about them, and also instructs us how to put them on. Now, note for now that it's important to recognize that Paul does not tell us that we are already wearing the armor, right? No, he tells us to take it up and put it on. Lots of Christians, as they go forward in their life, they sort of assume that they are already wearing this armor. But that is not the case, as Paul clearly indicates here, because he tells us to take it up and put it on. If we were already wearing it, then he wouldn't have to tell us to take it up and put it on. God has given this armor to us, and we must put it on, all right? Uh, it, it will help us protect ourselves from the enemy. The army of God does no good sitting in a closet. We must pick it up, we must put it on, and we must learn to wear it night and day until we feel naked and unprotected without it, all right? God has given this, given us this wonderful gift to help protect us from the enemy in this battle and we must make sure we use it we must take up the full armor of god and put it on now how to do that how can you put it on i'm not going to get into detail on that right now I, I, I heard a pastor preach a while back a sermon on this, and he said that what he does when he gets up in the morning, first thing before he does, before he gets out of bed, is he sort of mentally goes through the armor of God and he visualizes strapping on his helmet, you know, putting on his breastplate, wrapping the belt of truth around his waist, the sandals of the gospel, taking up the the shield and the sword and so on. So he visualizes himself doing this sort of in a spiritual way before he flips back the covers and climbs out of bed. You know what? I'm sure that works fine for him, but, but I think there's a lot more practical and real way that we can be putting on the armor of God in our lives. And as we go through the various pieces of the armor of God, we'll be looking at one at a time in each study going forward. I will be giving you some very practical, concrete suggestions on how you can take up the armor and put it on in your day-to-day life. It's not a mystical prayer experience that you do in your bed uh, before you flip back the covers and go about your day. It is actually very practical steps you can take in your life through your actions and your thoughts uh, in, in, in putting on this armor that God has given to us. Okay, so before you step out into battle, Paul says, number one, put on your armor, Okay, and now we get into the second part of this battle plan, which details our primary goal in this battle. Now, I want you to imagine what you think of as a goal on a battlefield. Think of books you've read, think, think of movies that you've watched. Think of, even if you were a soldier on a battlefield, what you would be doing. Typically, when we imagine a battlefield, we imagine two opposing armies facing off against each other across this field right? And usually the trumpets sound, and then there's the battle cry, whatever it is, and the two armies charge across the field toward each other, right? They run across the field, or they ride their horses, or whatever. This is typically the way we think of as battlefields, especially ancient battlefields, uh, where, you know, in, in the days of of Paul, or even in medieval times with knights and Uh, Castles and kings and so on. Okay. And then in the middle, they meet in this middle with this clash of blood and steel, right? And there's swords and there's arrows and there's people getting various body parts chopped off and things like that. Okay. So when we think of the battlefield that way and we think about what God through the pen of Paul is going to tell us to do on this battlefield, we might think he is going to shout to us, charge! Right? We've done our battle cry. And so now following the battle cry is the command, the order, the call to, you know, the the trumpet sound to charge into battle. In fact, this is even true when you think about sort of the outline of Ephesians up to this point. You may not know this, but the first three chapters of Ephesians are dominated by the keyword sit. And then the second three chapters, chapters 4, 5, and half of chapter 6, are dominated by the keyword walk, and so then you would think that this final section is the most active, which would be charge, and that's not true. It's sit, walk, and he doesn't say charge, he doesn't say run, he says stand. And he says stand four times in, in these verses. Uh, he says it there in the first part of verse 11, he says, that you may be able to stand And then he says it in 6.13, he says that you may be able to withstand and having done all to stand. So twice in verse 13. And then finally, at the beginning of verse 14, he says, stand therefore. So this is surprising, isn't it? Most of us assume that the Christian life is all about doing things, about activity. Right, So we say, well, how do you know you're living the Christian life? Well, you go places, you minister to people, you serve, you teach, you study, you give, you're very active. Many Christians assume that the spiritual life, the Christian life, is about spiritual activity. And so a lot of our songs are even about this, even some of these warfare songs, you know, onward, Christian soldiers, right? Marching off to war. Okay, but Paul doesn't say that. In fact, that song really isn't even biblical based on Ephesians chapter 6. Paul does not tell us to march off or to go onward. Four times in these three verses, he says, just stand there. All right, now. This indicates that while it is true that spiritual activity might be helpful helpful in other areas of the Christian life, and that's true, we do need to go, we do need to serve, we do need to teach, that's what I'm doing right now, teaching. Uh, the, the, when it comes to spiritual warfare, when it comes to fighting the devil, we shouldn't charge, we shouldn't go onward, we should just stand our ground. We must do nothing but stand there, right? So these are our battle orders on the field of battle. We are to stand our ground. We're to not give up. We're to not retreat. We also don't need to advance. We just need to stand our ground. Now, why does Paul say this? Why does he tell us to do nothing but stand there when it comes to spiritual warfare? You know, why can we walk first? Uh, 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 Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and the first part of chapter 6, why can we walk in other areas of our Christian life, but just stand there in spiritual battle? The main reason for this, there are several reasons, but the main reason is that the spiritual battle has already been won. We don't need to march out and meet the enemy because the enemy is already defeated. The enemy has already been vanquished, has been conquered, Uh, Remember, Paul wrote in Romans 8.37 that we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has already defeated the enemy for us. He is the victor. And so we don't have to advance. We don't have to march. We don't even have to move onward. All we have to do is stand on the ground that Jesus has already won for us. Now, there's multiple reasons for this, even. Part of it, of course, is that we as human beings could never defeat Satan on our own. He's much more stronger and powerful than we are. He's a deceiver, and we often fall prey to his deceptions. We'll be talking about that in just a a minute. So thankfully, God hasn't called on us to charge out and meet the devil or meet spiritual forces because they are far superior to us in our weakness and in our sinful state. Uh, So he hasn't called us, God has not called us to run out onto the battlefield. He's called us to do nothing but stand there on the ground, which Jesus has won for us. And it's very interesting that Paul says this because, surprise, surprise, standing their ground was actually one of the greatest keys to the power of the Roman military. Uh, While the Roman Empire did conquer the world, the known world at the time, by sending their armies out to do battle with other countries and nations and so on, the great strength, the great military genius of the Roman military was that once the armored Roman soldiers were on the field of battle, Their primary goal, they were trained, and this was drilled into them, their primary strategy on the battlefield was to do nothing but stand their ground. Now, they had various ways of doing this. Uh, For example, the Roman military historian Vegetius uh, writes that the smallest Roman security force was a guard unit made up of 16 men. These 16 men were spaced evenly, over 36 square yards, which means there was about one soldier every six feet or so. And uh, these soldiers were were trained to focus on one thing and one thing only. They must not let a single enemy soldier into their six-foot square piece of ground, piece of the battlefield. Right. So each soldier was given one command, one single command. They said, all right, we're going to march onto the battlefield. And then once we're there, you need to set up and stand your ground. Stand this. You have a little six feet square isn't very big. I am six feet tall. And so that means basically that I have a six foot arm span. So if I was a soldier, I would go out onto the battlefield and my commander would say, spread your arms forward backward. That's your area. It's not very large. It's a small piece of ground, considering how big this battlefield is. But I don't want you to concern yourself with the whole battlefield. I want you just to stand your ground, that little six-foot square area. It's not very much ground to cover. And really, it's not too hard. You don't need to worry about what's happening on the other side of the battlefield. Just worry about not letting a single enemy soldier into your six by six foot section of ground. Uh, this historian Vegetius tells us that when the Roman soldiers were arranged this way, when each soldier understood that all he had to do was stand his ground, his little six by six foot section, those sixteen men could stand against 500 attacking enemies. Now, I find it very, very helpful to think about spiritual warfare. In fact, just living the Christian life. uh, I find this very, very helpful when seeking to live the Christian life or stand up against spiritual warfare. Look, you can get overwhelmed. I can get overwhelmed at all the problems in this world about everything that's happening in our town, in our state, in our country, and around the world, all the wars and hunger and starvation and famine and sickness and diseases. And you want to know what? It can be overwhelming. There's too much to worry about, too much to pay attention to, too much need, too much hurt. How can I help? How can I serve? How can I do anything? Well, guess what? You don't have to. Jesus doesn't want you to. God has not given you enough energy or reserves or power or resources to take care of all the problems around all the world. What you are expected to do, though, is take care of your little tiny six-foot by six-foot section of the battlefield that's within arm's reach of you. All you need to do is focus on what is happening in your little six-foot square area. God does not expect you to defeat all the swarming hordes of spiritual forces by yourself. It is not up to you to stand against the entire spiritual realm of darkness. No, you have been given a tiny little bit of ground. Stand on it. Stand your ground and defend it. That's it. Do not let a single enemy enter into your space. That is the area God has entrusted to you, and that is what he wants you to stand your ground on. So what is your six-foot section, little six-foot area of land, square foot of land? Look, I think it's helpful to stretch out your arms and just realize it's the people and needs that are within arm's reach of you. Now, You know, that doesn't mean literally right now, just the things that are in arm's reach of you, because for me, that would be my desk and, you know, my computer and books and stuff, because there's no people around me. Uh, But that is one reason I'm teaching you right now, because you're within arm's reach of me, in a sense, through this microphone, and it's something I can do to help you. But it's not just that. You know, it's the people in your life, your spouse, your children, your parents. They are often within arm's reach reach of you, aren't they? And so you can help them. Uh, the, the, even your house itself or the your apartment or wherever you live, you can take care of your yard and your, your house, uh, make sure it is standing so you are giving a good place to live for the people under your house, under your care, under your protection. When we go to work, it's our coworkers and our boss or our employees that are within arm's reach of us. We can help them and take care of them and provide for them and do the best job we can at work with honesty and integrity and truthfulness. Uh, When we're standing around talking with people, we can be careful about the words that come out of our mouth that the people who are within six feet of us can hear. So when you know, you're know you're at the grocery store, how are you going to talk to the person who is checking you out or bagging your groceries? You can avoid gossip that's going to tear people down. Uh, you can be careful about the enemies that enter through your eyes. What do you see? The enemies that enter through your ears. What you hear. You can be careful what you watch, what you view, what you listen to. We are to, uh, as Paul writes in Ephesians or Philippians chapter 4, take our thoughts captive so that we're thinking only on what is noble, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Okay, this is your little six-foot square section of land. And God is calling you to stand your ground there. And you know, if every Christian around the world did just that, just stood their ground with the people and circumstances in their immediate vicinity, this world would be transformed for Jesus Christ within a couple of years. The change that would overtake this world would be unbelievable. But too often, we get too concerned about what's happening on the other side of the world and what's happening on the other side of the country. And because we're so concerned about what's happening over there, we neglect, we forsake, we forget, we ignore what's happening right now in front of us, in our own lives, and with the people in arm's reach of us. And when we neglect and forsake that, we have not stood our ground. The enemy comes in, swarms over us, and we give up. We lose the ground that we were supposed to stand on. All right. So standing your ground. Look, it does require vigilance. You must be alert and ready. Uh, the enemy is going to rush in. They are going to try to take over your little piece of ground. So, so But don't do that. Uh, be careful. You don't need to advance. You don't need to charge. But you do need to be vigilant about protecting and standing your ground on that little piece of ground that is right in front of you. Okay? So that's the second part of the battle plan. First part, put on your armor. We'll be talking about that later. Second, stand your ground. And I cannot emphasize this enough. Look, if you need to get rid of some things in your life because they are taking you away from your spouse and your children and your job and and the the people right around you right now, do it because these other things are distracting you taking away your time and your energy and your resources so that you are able to stand your ground and having done all, as Paul says, to stand. All right, so that's the second part of the battle plan. Stand your ground. The third and final part then is found in the last part of verse 11 and the last part of verse 13. And it is to watch out for traps. All right, as we stand our ground, the enemy, the devil, is setting traps for us. Paul calls these the wiles of the devil, all right? And uh, the the Greek word here for wiles, by the way, is methodoia, which is where we get our English word methods. So we could call these the methods of the devil as well. These are the tricks, the traps that he uses to injure us, to wound us, to trip us up, to ensnare us. Right As we are trying to stand our ground, the devil is trying to cause us to fall, to trip, to fall onto the ground. And so Paul tells us, look, while you're standing your ground, make sure you stand on your feet by watching out for the wiles of the devil. And the devil, or Satan, he is very good at what he does. In fact, sometimes As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 3 and 14, sometimes Satan appears as an angel of light. You ever uh, stop to think about what this means? If, If Satan appears as an angel of light, this means that some people, possibly many people, when they think they are following the light, when they think they are following what is good and true and godly and noble and right, It's possible they are actually following darkness and deception. Uh, It's possible that many people, even Christians, many Christians, think they're worshiping God when in fact they are worshiping the devil. I do talk about this in some of my books about the church and uh, how sometimes even the church can be the most satanic place in our town because... Satan uh, uh, means accuser. Did you know that? And so when churches and when religious people start to just simply become accusers and they are pointing the finger at everybody in their community and everybody in their town, condemning them, accusing them, we are no longer living the spirit of Jesus Christ, which is love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation and redemption and healing. We are, when we become accusers in our community, we are, in a sense, channeling the spirit of Satan. We are channeling accusation. It might feel good to condemn and accuse everybody, but that is not Christ-like. That is satanic, right? That is when we think we're following the light and following the truth, but we're actually following the devil. Anyway, to stand your ground against the devil and his accusations, the spirit of accusation— the wiles, the methods of the devil, I just want to s- uh, quickly summarize for you some of the ways, some of the traps and tricks that the devil uses, all right? Now, I go into a lot more detail uh, on these in my book on the armor of God, which is forthcoming, and will also be included in the lesson uh, for the course. This this audio version is just sort of a summarized uh, Boiled down version of what I teach in the lesson and in the book. But let me try to summarize some of the three types of traps that the devil lays out for us. And John talks about these, the Apostle John, in 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He basically says there that there are three types of traps we can encounter in our Christian life. John calls them the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And although there are a wide variety of temptations, you know, specific temptations that the devil can throw our way, when you step back and look at them, they all boil down to these three broad categories of traps. The lust of the flesh, you know, what our body wants. Uh, The lust of the eyes, this is the things we see and covet and desire in other people. And then the pride of life, just the things we do to make ourselves feel better, to puff ourselves up, to make ourselves look better in the eyes of other people. All temptations fall into those three categories. So even when a temptation comes and you're like, oh, I haven't faced this temptation before, well, maybe not that specific temptation, but I can guarantee that you have faced a temptation in that category before. And so you can stand up against it. Now we see these three temptations way back in the Garden of Eden uh, in Genesis 3:6. I did cover this in my podcast study on Genesis 3:6, and you can go back and look at their, uh look at uh, listen to that study on Genesis 3:6. Uh, but uh, when the serpent came to tempt Eve, she saw that the tree was good for food. That's the lust of the flesh. Okay, she's seen it, but it's good for food. So this was her stomach inviting her to eat from the fruit. All right, Uh, that it was pleasing to the eyes. So there is the lust of the eyes. It looked good to her. And then that it was desirable to make one wise, right? There's the pride of life. She wanted to puff herself up, to uh, make herself more like God, in a sense. All right, so we see that way back in the Garden of Eden when the serpent tempted Eve. But we also see it, for example, in Luke chapter 4, when the devil came and tempted Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. The gospel accounts tell us that Satan presented Jesus with three different temptations. Satan wanted Jesus to turn stone into bread. What's that? There's the stomach again, his hunger, the lust of the flesh. Uh, Satan showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the world And said, you know, bow down and these can be yours. That's the lust of the eyes. He showed him He said, don't you desire these kingdoms? And then Satan tempted Jesus to throw himself down from the pinnacle of the temple. Then all the crowd below would see him and would recognize him as the Messiah. This is the pride of life. Jesus, don't you want them to recognize you for who you really are? The Messiah, right? And and so there we see, even in Luke chapter 4, the... um, these three broad categories of temptations. So And so when temptation comes into your life, you will, his temptation says, Satan's not really very creative. They will fall into one of these three categories. And you can know that whatever temptation comes, even if it's something brand new you've never really faced before, the specific temptation, it falls into one of those three categories. And, and Jesus shows us how to stand up against it. He quotes some scripture and basically turns uh, Satan's arguments back on himself. And we'll be talking about that, by the way, when we look at the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, as we get into the armor of God later, uh, in a later lesson. All right? So so those are the three traps. Now, uh, there are three targets that Satan is aiming for, three primary targets. There were three types of temptations, three categories of temptations. There's also three main targets three areas that Satan is constantly trying to destroy and undermine. These three targets are the church, the family, and your own personal life. Let's look at all three real briefly. First, the church. Now, there's a wide variety of ways Satan seeks to destroy and undermine the church. The primary method, I'm convinced on this method, methodoia, is to confuse people at what the church actually is. All right, Many, many people, many church people and unchurch people, have fallen prey to this temptation and are quite confused about what the church actually is. Most people, the vast majority of people alive today, equate the church with a building. Other people think of it as an event. So it is not uncommon to hear people say, where do you go to church? Or, when is your church service? (laughs) Both of those questions reveal this idea in many people's mind that the church is a place, the building, or it's an event, you know, a place you can go to and have an experience there or something. Well, it takes place at 10 o'clock down at the corner of Elm and Main Street on the brick building with the white steeple, right? And that's what many people think of as church, but they have fallen prey to an attack. Uh, 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 of the devil on the church. Satan does not want you, does not want people to recognize what the church actually is. And what is the church? Well, as I discuss in my book, Skeleton Church, where I give a bare bones definition of the church, Skeleton Church is not a people, I'm sorry, is not a building, is not an event. It is the people. Uh, the church consists of people who follow Jesus into the world. That's the bare-bones definition of the church. Again, I define that in skeleton church. What is church? It is the people of God who follow Jesus into the world. It's not a building. It's not a place. It's not an event. Now, when we recognize that the church is people, you quickly understand that you cannot go to church because the church goes with you. If you are part of the church, you don't go to church, the church goes with you. Wherever you go, there goes the church. And you cannot attend church, because whatever you're doing and wherever you're going, that is what the church is doing, and that is where the church is going. If you are the church, the church goes with you, and the church functions in and through you as you interact with other people, as you follow Jesus and live uh, as he did among other people. Right? So there's no such thing as a Sunday morning church service unless you, as the church, as a part of the church, are going out and loving and serving people in your community or in your family. All right? The ch- Sunday church quote-unquote service does not consist of five songs and a sermon. <laughs> no. All right? That might be an aspect that might be helpful for you as you seek to be the church you know, learn a little bit more about what God wants from scripture and maybe find some encouragement and hanging out with other like-minded people. But that is not church. That is not the only way church shows up, right? And Satan doesn't want people to see this, especially Christians. Satan is thrilled if you think that the church is a building in your town that you can go to for two hours or so a week. And that when you've done that, you have gone to church. You have fulfilled your church responsibility for the week. Satan does not want people to know that they are the church and that the church goes with them and that when they interact with their spouse and when they interact with their neighbors and when they go to work, they are living and functioning and acting as the church in their community. If you wanna read, learn more about that, check out my series of books. I have several books written on this. It's called the Close Your Church for Good series of books. No, I don't want you to close your church. Although maybe I do. I want that fake, deceptive concept of church to be done away with so that the church, the true church, can rise and shine and live and serve and breathe and function as Jesus fully intended it to do on this earth. Okay, close your close your church... Uh, For good, series of books, available on Amazon, pretty much anywhere books are sold. All right, the church is the first place, the first target for Satan's attacks. What is the second target for his attacks? It is the family. The family unit is God's primary method of world evangelism and life transformation. From the very beginning, God set up the family. And all through time, all through history, God has wanted the family to be our primary source of attention and evangelism and ministry and discipleship. But Satan knows that the family is so important for God's plan and purposes in this world that Satan spends a lot of time and energy attacking the family, trying to break up the family, trying to destroy marriage relationships and the parent family re- of parent child relationships. If you were to think about it, if all Christians only Evangelized and discipled their own children. You don't have to worry about your neighbors. You don't have to worry about your coworkers. You don't have to worry about the people in Africa or Asia or Indonesia or the other parts of the world. If all Christians for the last 2,000 years, were only to make sure their children were brought up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and taught the Scriptures, learned to believe, and invited to believe in Jesus for eternal life and what that means, how to live that in their own life. If that's the only thing Christians had done as far as evangelism was concerned for the past 2,000 years, the entire world would be Christian today. Okay? Uh, yeah, people would come around and there would be converts from other people, and those because they would see just like we do in Acts. Wow, how come your life, your family is so filled with love and grace? and happiness and joy and you'd say oh well you know you would explain to them because you would be focusing on your family and then they would want that too and you would have an opportunity to invite them now those people would be able to marry christian children and they would then raise up and disciple their own children and it would spread like wildfire around the entire earth why because we're not focusing on something over there we're focusing standing our ground on the six foot square section of ground around us, which primarily, first and foremost, is our family, our spouse, and our children. Okay, so Satan knows that and he attacks it. Paul also knows that, which is why he's defending it. And why, by the way, Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, all the way through Ephesians 6, 4, talking about the marriage relationship and the parent. Child relationship. Paul knows it's important because it's important to God. Satan knows it's important, which is why he's attacking the family. He attacks the church. He attacks the family. Thirdly and finally, he attacks your personal life. I don't need to tell you anything about this. You know you are under attack. You know that Satan tries to trip you up. He tries to tempt you. He tries to tear you down. He tries to tell you that God doesn't love you, can't forgive you, that you're worthless, that uh, your life is worthless and meaningless. All of these are lies of the devil, All right? God wants you. He's prepared things for you. He's given you gifts. He loves you more than you can possibly imagine. He believes in you. He likes you. He loves you. He's calling you, inviting you, spurring you on toward the best life you can possibly live. And the devil wants to stop you from doing that. All right, so we've looked at the three tactics of the devil, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. We looked at the three targets of the devil, the church, the family, your own personal life. There's only one tactic or one sort of way of approach that the devil has for these. Uh, for the traps, for the three traps. Did I say one, three tactics? I meant three traps. I'm really uh, struggling over my words today. I apologize about that. must be the Novocaine. I'm going to blame it on my my dental, my dentist from this morning. Look, uh, there's three traps, three targets, and one tactic. Only one tactic. And what is it? Satan challenges what God has said. Right? He raises doubts in our minds about the truth of Scripture. He twists and perverts what the Bible says. He makes subtle changes to the Word of God. Right, He might add a word to what God has said. We see this when he tempted Eve, for example. Did God really say that you must not eat of the fruit or touch it, lest you will die? No, God never said she couldn't touch it. I'd have been wise for her not to, but if she had touched it, that would not have been breaking God's law. But Satan changes it, and in that way, he raises doubts in Eve's mind. All right, he rips verses out of context uh, when Satan tempts Jesus in the wilderness. That is what he does. Satan. You know we often like to quote scripture at Satan. Well, guess what? Satan's the greatest Bible scholar in the universe, other than God Himself and and you know Jesus, of course. Satan knows scriptures better than we do, and he can quote scripture out of context with the best of them, and that's what he does when he tempts Jesus in the wilderness during one of the temptations. Uh, he quotes scripture at Jesus. What does he do though? He rips it out of context. You go back and look at the verse Satan quotes at Jesus, and he has taken it completely out of context. But this is what Satan does. He twists, distorts scripture, raises doubts in our minds about scripture, questions, challenges scripture, even quotes scripture out of context. All of Satan's traps, all of his temptations, everything he does, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, every temptation that he is going to send your way, somewhere in that is going to be a way he is twisting and distorting what God has said. God wants you to be happy, doesn't he? Well, yes, God wants us to be happy, but guess what? Guess how you're happy? You're happy by obeying God. Satan says, no, God wants you to be happy, so you should go do this. You should, you know, make that step. You should try this out because it looks like it's going to be good for you, okay? He is raising doubt and question and distorting what God has said to make you follow and fall, trip, fall into one of his traps for what God to dis- to disobey what God has said you to do. So that's the one tactic to question, challenge, distort God's word. And there's two secret powers. Again, we're talking about the various wiles of the devil. We've talked about the traps. We've talked about the targets. We've talked about the one tactic. I just want to sort of close with this concept of two, there are two secret powers that Satan has. Satan is a deceiver. And he likes to make himself appear more powerful than he is. And he does this by claiming for himself two secret powers. He doesn't have these powers, but he likes to think he does. And he definitely likes to make people think he does, right? Uh, He uses these secret powers to his advantage, to trip people up, to trap people in sin. The first secret power is his invisibility that's what I call it his invisibility you now yes Satan is invisible uh you cannot literally see him with your eyes but I'm not talking about that Satan uh, likes to be more invisible than just that. Satan loves it when people think that he doesn't actually exist. That's what I mean by invisible. Modern minds love to explain Satan away to think oh he's just a you know a thing of the past. A, A figment of imagination. He's what people in ancient times, before they knew better, used to explain the evil things and bad things that happened in this world. But us, scientific modern people, we know better. (laughs) We're so smart, right? In our modern scientific world, the non-existence of Satan, the invisibility, right? He doesn't exist. It is a popular wile of the devil. You probably heard it said, and I agree, that one of the greatest lies of Satan is that Satan doesn't exist. But Satan does exist. Satan is real, and he shows his ways in so many, shows his his force, his uh, face in so many ways in our lives and throughout this world, through ac- accusation as I talked about earlier, through deception and through evil and violence and death and warfare and blame and rivalry and all these things I talked about in some of my books, some in some of my podcasts, and uh, uh, I'll be talking about more in the future as well. Satan is real, okay? Satan does exist. Now, <clears throat> we'll, we'll talk more next time when we look at verse 12 on a lot more about Satan and how he exists in this world, right? He's not this, this, this red-faced, pointy... You know, he doesn't have little pointy horns and the pointy tail and the pitchfork. That's not that's not right, um, but uh, he does exist. Okay, so we we, want, we must take him seriously. In but he loves to convince people he doesn't exist. That's his first secret power. Second secret power is his invincibility. His first was his invisibility. His second is his invincibility. He likes people to think that he truly is equal with God. God is omnipotent. Only God truly is—I hate to put it this way because God's not a superhero—but God is invincible. He cannot be defeated or broken or overpowered in any sort of way. Satan likes us to think that he is similar to God in that fashion, right? Um, And and what is interesting about this second secret power— is that if Satan can't convince people that he doesn't exist, right, that he's invisible, then he'll go this opposite way and say, well, fine, okay, you believe that Satan exists? Well, then I want you to believe that I am invincible. If he can't convince people he's invisible, he tries to convince them he's invincible, right? That there's nothing we can do to stop him. When people recognize that Satan is real, he tries to get them to think that he is equal with God, that he's all-powerful, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-present. Right? And you hear Christians talk about this sometimes. Sometimes Christians are convinced that Satan is following them around in life, right? Lurking over their shoulder. Well, that idea is not true. It makes it, it's, it's the impression that Satan is omnipresent, all-powerful. But Satan isn't omnipresent, right? Not all-powerful, all-present. He's everywhere. (laughs) Um, Another word trip up. I apologize for that. Uh, Also, people you often hear Christians say that, uh, you know, Satan can read your thoughts. No, he can't. God knows our thoughts, but Satan cannot read our thoughts. God is omniscient, all-knowing. Satan is not all-knowing. Right. Uh, we hear Christians say things like, well, Satan stopped my car from starting this morning, so I couldn't go to church. There's all sorts of bad ideas in that idea, especially this concept of going to church. But Satan can't stop your car. Okay, He's not omnipotent. He's not all powerful. He doesn't have that kind of power to stop your car from working. Right. So we can't blame him for those sorts of things. He's not all-powerful. He's not all-knowing. He's not all-present. He is not invincible, even though he likes us to think that he is and satan loves to get credit for these sorts of things he loves to us for us to be terrified of him shaking in our boots because we think he's reading our thoughts stopping our car from running lurking over our shoulder and you know hovering over our beds at night so we don't sleep because because he's just waiting for you know we're waiting for him to to stop us from breathing or get sick or kill our children or some horrible thing like that that satan cannot do but when we think he we he can we've fallen prey to this second Power of Satan is his invincibility, all right? Uh, Satan is very beatable, and in fact, he has already been defeated. He is a defeated foe. He's a conquered, vanquished foe. Jesus defeated him, all right? I told you earlier that we shouldn't try to stand up to Satan because we will get beat. Thankfully, we don't have to beat him because Satan is already beat, all right? He's already been defeated. He's already conquered. So that's what we're learning here. We've seen uh, the three sort of battle plan. This is the 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 way to make sure we are successful in spiritual warfare. And Paul has been talking about this in verses eleven and thirteen. He first talked to us um, about putting on the armor of God. Then our command, our single command on the battlefield, is to stand our ground. We don't need to charge. We don't need to advance. And we just need to stand our ground in our little six foot by six foot square piece of the battlefield, which is the people and events right around us in our immediate vicinity wherever we go. And then we talked a little bit about the wiles of the devil, the tricks and traps of the devil that he lays out for us to try to get us to fall on our our behinds (laughs) so that we're no longer standing on our ground. If we do those three things, put on our armor, stand our ground. And are aware of the temptations and wiles and traps that the devil is going to send our way. We will be successful, soldiers of Jesus Christ, on a spiritual battlefield. Now, I know you might have a lot more questions about Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness that he's going to throw against us, our enemy, our foe. And so that's going to be the last part of these of this battle briefing that we're going to be looking at next time when we look at verse 12. Which, uh, where Paul goes into a lot more detail about our battle foe, our battle enemy. Remember, before you can beat your enemy, you need to know your enemy. Also, one of the key truths about success on in, spirit, in, in any warfare, really, is to know your enemy. And so Paul is going to spend—we'll we'll look at that next time when we look at verse 12 about knowing our enemy. And we'll learn a little bit more there about Satan and the spiritual forces of wickedness that he's throwing against us. Okay? So, Thank you so much for joining me today for this study of Ephesians chapter six verses eleven and thirteen. And remember, if if you want to learn more about this, get a free ebook on spiritual warfare, and uh, join my private online Facebook group. All you need to do is join my discipleship group. Uh, go to redeeminggod.com/join to learn more. There is a, 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 a low. Monthly fee for that, $9 a month, or you can save some money by paying annually $89. And when you do that, you get access to all of my courses. There's six or seven or eight of them there now, I'm not sure what. I'm working on uh, the spiritual warfare one, another one on how to study the Bible, another one on a Bible dictionary. There's several that are completed. You get access to all of those at no extra charge. It's worth thousands of dollars. You're going to be able to download free ebooks on all of these courses as well. And uh, plus access to other like-minded people where you can get encouragement, uh, have people uh, pray for you and, and help you answer your questions, okay? And, and just realize that you are not alone in this world. You are part of a band of brothers in the spiritual warfare. And there are people who love you and are like you and are interested in you and want to help you take the next step in wherever Jesus is leading you in your life. So... Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me on our study today. We'll see you next week when we pick back up with Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And we study, we learn about the enemy that is against us, our battle foe, the devil, and the spiritual forces of wickedness. See you then. Okay.